Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. So when I was in the sixth grade, I would say I was a very serious poet. Sixth grade poet, okay. (laughs) I thought that I had discovered my medium, like this is how I was going to express myself to the world. Okay. So of course, when a poetry contest was announced at school, I was like, this is it. You entered. And of course, I won. Of course, you won. (laughs) So my parents drive me to the local Barnes & Noble where the award ceremony is being held. And we walk into what I would say is a stage full of five and six year olds <laughs> reading limericks about friendship. <laughs> and it's immediately clear oh no, this is a contest where everybody won. <laughs> I am not special. Oh, Tobin. I know. And it wouldn't have been a problem if I hadn't been going through my dark phase. An emo phase? An emo phase, exactly. It's that phase where everyone thinks that in order to be serious and important, you have to be as dark as possible. Okay. So the poem I had written was about a heartless CEO of a company who accidentally shoots his only friend in the world, a dog, on a hunting trip. <laughs> Delvin. It was very dark. So sad. And when my parents read it, they were like, is this a cry for help? And I was like, no, I'm a serious poet. <laughs> so... They drive me to this award ceremony. We're standing there in front of all the five and six-year-olds, and we look at each other, and I'm like, we got to get out of here. <laughs> oh, so you did not scar people. Of course I'm not going to read that poem I in mean, front of six-year-olds. Uh... Well, yeah. The moral of the story, really, is that poetry is powerful. Okay. You know, it's like a powerful thing. Sure. Which is a great segue, because our story today is about poetry, and it's from our friend Peter. Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi, guys. Are you excited? Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited. You just want me to read this? Yeah, yes, please. From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. So, Peter, take it away. Okay. I remember the exact day that I fell in love with Joe. It was June 6th, 2010. It was the end of my junior year of high school. And this is boarding school, so you have to picture, like, lush manicured lawns and Georgian architecture and salmon-colored shorts. Everyone's about to go home for the summer, uh, but before we left, a group of my friends and I decided to have a sleepover in one of our dorm rooms. And the next day, for some reason, I get up really early in the morning, maybe 6 or 7. And when I open my eyes... I saw that my friend Joe was awake, too. And Joe was this skinny, pale, red-headed kid who was in my class. We knew each other a little. We acted in our school's production of Arsenic and Old Lace together. And I was drawn to his frantic way of moving through the world that seemed to be somehow both anxious and fearless at the same time. But mostly, we were like polite strangers. But then that morning, something happened. It was super early. Joe was standing by the door getting dressed. He didn't notice that I was awake too. And there was this beam of light coming in from the window. And the light landed on Joe's face in this way that made his pale skin glow and his red hair glow. And I don't know why, but in that second, before I was even fully awake, I realized that I loved Joe more than I'd ever loved anybody else in my entire life. For most people in that situation... 
I think the next step would be obvious. But for me, it wasn't really so easy. I'd only just come out the year before, and I still couldn't even say the word gay out loud. And to make matters worse, while I thought Joe might be gay, he wasn't saying anything about it either. Still, I tried. My attempts at romance ranged from the subtle, sending him an anonymous cupcake on Valentine's Day, to the extremely subtle, brushing my hand against his when I walked past him in the hallway. Sometimes Joe seemed to reciprocate these little gestures, like he'd smile or he'd grab my hand a little as I passed. And sometimes he didn't. For about a year, this was my life. And then we graduated. But my love for Joe just kept getting stronger and stronger. Then, six months after we graduated, Joe came and visited me at college at NYU. And those six long months apart from Joe had made me a little more confident and a little more desperate. And so on the night of Joe's visit, we were sitting on the floor of my common room. All my roommates had gone to bed. And then in the lull between one topic of conversation and another, I leaned forward and I kissed him. And Joe kissed me back. The next morning, I woke up and Joe and I were lying in bed together. And in that moment, I saw the future. I imagined Joe meeting my parents. I wondered what gay men were supposed to wear to a wedding. I I hoped that our children might have red hair. But when Joe woke up, he got dressed, and he left. After that visit, my contact with Joe slowly fell to zero. He stopped responding to my text messages, And there were moments when I wondered if maybe that night we'd spent making out on my dorm room floor had just been, like, one vast hallucination. And at this point, I could have chosen just to forget about Joe. I'd already spent two years pining after him as it was. But instead, I started writing love poems. So that one day, when Joe was ready, I could share them with him. Love poems. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you don't mean, like, a haiku. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wrote, I started writing Shakespearean love sonnets. Oh, man. So there's different kinds of sonnets, and I chose the Shakespearean form. Because? Because um, uh, <laughs> it seemed the most impressive to me. They were created as, like, a way to show a lover that you loved them. And so you did this incredibly complicated, incredibly obtuse piece of poetry in order to prove to your your lady that you were skilled in the art of language. You wanted the grand gesture. I wanted the grand gesture, yeah. yeah. So I, I think I wrote like 15-ish sonnets, and then I gave them a title, and the title was Verses in Amber. Wow. Verses um, in Amber. Why verses in amber? Like the so amber is that thing that where like insects will sometimes crawl into tree sap and then the sap will like solidify. That's and it's like mm. a, that's amber. And so like the idea was that I would. It was like a romantic Jurassic Park. I was gonna say that too. <laughs> so what happened to the poems? Um, I put them in this little black accordion folder, and I just put them away. And I was gonna wait until. Joe was ready to see them. And so I sat on them um, for six years. And one night I had too many fruit punches to drink. 
and I decided it was time to invite Joe over to my apartment to show him these poems. And so I gave him a call, and a couple days later, he shows up at my front door. Hey. Hey. It's the right house. Come here. Joe looks basically the same way he did back in high school. Like, he's still got the same red hair, the same bright blue eyes. We made small talk for a few minutes, and eventually we went to go sit down on my couch. I was really excited to finally talk openly with him. Can you tell me what, what we're doing here? Yeah, we're, ha- we're having a conversation about how you used to be in love with me, and I apparently had no idea. Is that generally what we're doing? And there's poetry involved. So do you want to, I guess the first thing, before I show you anything, can you tell me about like your, your memories of, of me and, and what are your first memories? And I can see if I can remember my first memories of you too. We talked about that production of Arsenic and Old Lace that we've been in together. You were the romantic lead. The reverend. No. No, 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 no. I was a police officer, I think. I was on stage for all of three scenes. You were in the cutest little outfit. That's true. I remember it. It's true. And eventually, I told him about that morning that I'd fallen in love with him. And I asked, if I had said something to him all those years ago, how would he have responded? I probably would have run like hell for the hills. No, I was, no. I don't think I would have taken that well at all. I wouldn't have known what to do with it. Is it but it because it scared you, or... Was I, was I terrified? I mean, I was uncertain. I didn't really know... I didn't know where, where which direction forward was. I, I don't think I would have begrudged you it. Um, uh, but I, I would, it would have, I would have just been confused and conflicted. At last, we got to the poems. I took out the black accordion folder that I'd been keeping them in for years and years, and I pulled out a sheet of paper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's, so I'm just going to read it? Yeah. I, if you, do, you, do you mind reading it out loud, actually? All right. Okay. There you go. Though dreams be wild, none be so wild as this crepuscular illusion of present you who offers, as this be in sleep, a kiss remembered fresh and wet as if were new. But what so floods my sheets in midnight warmth is not imagined touch, but a silence sheer that marks you close and clears the blaring earth of all but us. Electric hums the air when you do share not just a grasping bed, but chairs across an empty table or a room, a street, cities, A time far spread with me. You're here. I cannot ask for more. And once awake and ghostly forms are past, I cry to see the dreams at my feet amassed. Crepuscular means like of or... No, 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 no. You've written it crepuscular. Yeah, crepuscular. Meaning? Of or relating to twilight. Certainly. Okay. How do you, can I see how you, how you feel? Because your face is sort of hard to read. I don't know how I feel. Um, it's a nice poem. I It's strange to imagine that it's about us. That's strange. Why is it, why is it strange? I don't know. To be a character in a poem... It didn't feel this pretty. 
this isn't what I experienced even a little. This does not describe what happened as far as I'm concerned. And then we just kind of sat there for a while. Joe's eyes were glued to the sheet of paper. And then like, I'll show you. We were in a relationship. I had no idea. We were. There's a, there is a whole, there's a whole narrative here that I was not privy to. That I had no, that I didn't participate in. I didn't, I didn't have access to this. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to see this. But am I wrong in thinking that you, that you wouldn't have, like, you wouldn't have wanted to see this? I don't know if that's fair to say. I don't, I don't know how I would have responded five years ago. Um... Like, if I just sent you an email, like, with, with my poetry in, uh, let's say it's the spring of, of 2011, but right, you know, in our freshman year, like, how, like, would you have ever talked to me again? Because I, I mean, I, I, I mean. I would have been disappointed in myself for not feeling as deeply about anything as you seem to have felt about me. All those times I'd brushed my hand against his in the hallway, he didn't remember those. The anonymous cupcake that I sent him on Valentine's Day? Maybe, but vaguely. The night we made out in my NYU dorm room? I, it was, we, I, I think it was more of an experimentation on my part than it was a, a stab at something deeper. I did not leave that dorm room in the same headspace at all. Does this make you feel loved at all? No. Not particularly. You're saying that I loved you like crazy for a long period of time and that doesn't make you feel loved? No. Why would it? (laughs) I wasn't there. I don't know. I've not, I'm not a person who has done much thinking about the nature of love in between two people. But I don't imagine that you can go back and add love later to a memory or a relationship. And is there anything else I need from you? Yeah, unless you have other questions. I think I'm all sad. Okay. Oh, man. I mean, I have to ask, was this the worst-case scenario? Yeah. You know, Mm. I got, like, the emotional equivalent of, like, a concrete wall. Right. And and I'll try to rationalize this a lot, but I was just, I was so, I was mad. I was pissed off. And then I started going back through, like, not just my crush on Joe, but, like, all of my past relationships— and I started thinking that maybe there was, like, things that I had missed, other other things that I had missed. Like, maybe this wasn't the first time that I had imagined a love that wasn't there. Mm. And then I found something interesting. Oh, this sounds ominous. <laughs> so I was doing something that you shouldn't ever do, which is read through the Facebook messages you sent to your ex-boyfriends. Oh, boy. Oh. 
And I happened to find this Facebook message from my very first boyfriend, Jeffrey, who I dated in high school right around the time that I fell in love with Joe. And the very first message was a love poem. That you had written? No, that he had written to me. Ah. But do I, you have it? I do. <laughs> this is the poem. The icy darkness, I plunge into it like a swimmer in the sea, feeling no cold on anxious skin. I feel the heat from the furnace in little gestures, a stroke here, a caress there, a stolen kiss on the cheek. The fire burns, consuming anxiety, leaving passion wild as untamed jungles consumed in its raging blaze. I see his eyes, bright as stars, golden as a summer's liquid beam, shine on my face in wonder. Their liquid light is comforting as earth. Stroke the fire burning under my skin, capture me in their crystal perfect gaze. No more darkness, only pure light as you hold me in your arms and stroke my hair, never letting go. That's a beautiful poem. I mean, like... High school, right? Yeah, that was high school. We were 16. Wow. The level of passion. Jeffrey really loved you. Yeah. I mean, is that is that representative of your relationship at the time with Jeffrey? It, 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 it's not. Because I didn't really love Jeffrey Beck. Oh, Peter. I, okay, I was 16 and I had just come out and I think I was so confused. I was, so, I was, I was really still struggling with who I was and, and I just like was not in a place to, to feel anything towards anybody. I have to point out the obvious here. Do you realize that what you just said parallels pretty intensely what Joe said to you? And that's, and that, that makes me sad because being in the place in life that I am where I think I, I want a deep love, it's like super hard to get that poem because I was like, oh, shit. Like there was an opportunity of someone who really deeply cared about me and, and it, didn't, it didn't affect me. And that was sad that I missed. It feels like something that I missed. And I, I read that and I just and I stopped being mad at Joe like all of a sudden. And I think what I ultimately realized was that I don't think I was ever in, in love with Joe, honestly. Well, I don't know. I feel like I've fallen in love with an image before of somebody that I couldn't get out of my head. And I would argue that that was still love. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still it's still a thing that exists. I wouldn't say that that wasn't really love. I guess for me, it, it's not the love that I want. Hmm. Yeah. You know, like, I, I the, the kind of love that I want, I think, is the love that, that, that acknowledges another person in all their sort of failings and foibles and, and beauties and, and uh, amazingness. That was Peter Bresnan with his grand gesture. And friends, we want to hear about your grand gesture. For example, have you ever written a book of haikus for someone? Mm-hmm. Or hired a skywriter to propose to your girlfriend, maybe? Or paid money to name a star after somebody? Tobin, that happened to me. No, it did not. <laughs> did it yeah, really? Yeah, ex-girlfriend. How much money does that cost? 
Uh, not as much as you'd think, but I did get a big frame picture of it. So there's a Kathy 2 in the sky. Yeah, from one of the companies. I don't know. Well, we want to hear about your Kathy 2s in the sky. Yes, we do. So record your grand gesture in a voice memo on your phone and send it to nancy at wnyc.org. And we'll share some of our favorites. We're, we're asking about grand romantic gestures. What is John? Literally, we've been together 10 years. The answer is nothing. Like, we got, no, like, we got engaged, and even that, like, wasn't a big deal. Surely he's done something. Well, he he did let you get cats, and he's allergic to them. Oh, yeah, maybe that's it. We have two cats, and he's allergic. How allergic? Like, super allergic. Like, like he got shocked for, like, two and a half years. How does he get by now? He, he takes Claritin, and he doesn't really touch them. And they're not allowed in our bedroom, like, because he would die. I'm going to say that's like a long game romantic right? gesture. Yeah, it is. That's true. It's like it's like a long a long form grand gesture of love. <laughs> this is Nancy. We'll be back after these messages. Kathy, I think we might overshare too much. Like somehow I not only know that you switched to a diva cup. Whoa! but also that you are on a journey and you're very satisfied with it. Hoban, that is private (laughs) information. I mean, you did share it. Okay. Well, we can edit it out. No, we won't because it proves the point I want to make. I can hear you. Okay, okay. Easy. (laughs) The thing I'm trying to say is that I think oversharing can be pretty powerful. Can it? No, seriously. Especially if, like, the overshare is coming from a place of, like, wanting people to understand them better. So I'm thinking of this cabaret artist named Shakina Nafak. She's a trans actress in Hulu's Difficult People and an amazing cabaret performer. She recently starred in an autobiographical musical called Manifest Pussy, which is an incredible name. And the thing about this show is that Shakina goes into very specific, sometimes graphic detail that people don't often talk about. For a lot of trans folks, these are conversations that they either don't want to have or, you know, very much want to have on their own terms. For Shakina, she says it's important for her to put it out there. When I was doing the investigative work to see if I really wanted to do this and I looked up all the websites that were like medical, clinical websites, I was terrified. I mean, the information was presented in such a a daunting manner. And this for someone who was looking to do it for themselves. Now, if I'm just like a general cisgender person who's never questioned my relationship to my body in regards to gender, then there's a total mystery to me as to why someone would want to go through that process. And I think that that mystery creates assumptions and creates fear out of lack of understanding. And so to me, the most important thing that I could do through my process was be public about it in order to demystify it and give people insight into what I was experiencing and why I was doing it, what I was feeling. And in my show, I get very gruesome about the details of what the, what the procedure is. Well, actually, we have a clip of that. Well, he explains to me how the surgery will work. 
First, my scrotum will be sliced from the bottom up and my testicles discarded. Then my penis will be filleted, the head of my dick spliced to create a clitoris and a ring of erogenous tissue lining the upper crest of my labia minora made from either side of what was once my shaft. Then the skin of my scrotum will be removed completely, the top layer cauterized to get rid of all the hair follicles and sewn around a stint to create a tubular skin graft that will be inserted into a cavity hollowed out in my pelvic floor. So six and a half hours and 450 stitches later, I'll be female. I open that up as like a metaphor for anyone who's had a quest for self-fulfillment, which I think most people have. And when you start to understand gender confirmation as one form of this really universal struggle, which is to become your truest self, then it's not so terrifying or confusing. And even if you, even if you can't identify with the specifics, you can identify with that longing. Well, and you take it even a step further because it's not just talking about the metaphor of transformation, but there's a lot of spirituality in the show. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing more subversive than being a trans woman of faith, especially right now. I think that queer people have so often been forced out of their churches and synagogues and systems of faith. And uh, granted, there are now a lot more inclusive and affirming congregations, but on a personal level, I think the experience of being shunned socially, but also being told that you're unlovable in the eyes of God has really made queer people feel like they can't have a one-on-one relationship with a divine source. Though at some point you start talking about transition less as like a medical procedure and, and more as a spiritual transformation. How did that realization help you? I was really afraid to transition. I was afraid that I would not be, quote-unquote, passable. Um, I was afraid of the pain. I was afraid of rejection. And I sort of clumped that all together into a belief that I told myself, which, as I said, was that God doesn't make mistakes and my body is perfect the way it is. So what ended up happening was that as I wrestled with my transgender identity, I was really wrestling with God, which is an essential aspect of Judaism. Anyway, so I grew up in a culture that wrestles with God very openly. I realized that I had been telling myself this story that was, in fact, not true. And so over the course of those 10 years, between the time that I came out as trans and the time that I decided to transition medically, I had really focused on cultivating a feminist and spiritual sense of womanhood in my male body and had really built like a pretty deep reservoir of both of those things. So when it came time to undertake my medical transition, it to me was the ultimate pilgrimage. And I mean that in a, in a, in a biblical and a ritual sense, like it was a journey that implied sacrifice uh, and covenant in exchange for some sort of divine affirmation. And that literal sacrifice of my flesh was a ritual exchange. You're going to share a song with us from Manifest Pussy. I am. Do you mind setting up what it is? When it happens in the show, what's happening? Yeah, so this this song happens about two-thirds of the way through the show. It's the first song that happens after the surgery takes place. And after I'd been in bed for a week, a nurse helped me out of bed and escorted me to the bathroom so I could take my first shower. And it was the first time I saw my body in the mirror naked. And it was also the first time that I touched my new vagina. And the song is called? Down the Shower Drain. And it's by my dear friend, Julianne Wick Davis. Who is with us now at the piano.
Water falls on my thirsty skin Like rain on a dry riverbed My hands are eager to take the journey But I wait and let the water go ahead Trickling down my shoulder Hugging every bend Seeking out the places Where my travels will end And this ritual feels so new today Washing the old me away And the water circles round Circles round Circles round new terrain The old me circles down Circles down Circles down the shower drain Soapy fingers on a virgin tour Head south to explore a new land They slide down my belly Eager for changes never felt before With my hands Folds upon a landscape And a newly fashioned mound A railroad of stitches To a paradise found And the water circles round Circles round Circles round new terrain The old me circles down Circles down Circles down the shower drain To puddles and wetlands and channels and rapids of water. Learn me, find my valley and chasm and harbor and hollow. I'm a natural park with a river you can follow to a shrine of glory with a baptismal font formed by years and years and years and years of one. stand the new found me I saw in a Thailand dream the nurse asks do you feel pain and my tears began to flow into the stream water drips off all the things it should And all I say is No, I feel good 
And my mind circles round, circles round, as the old me goes down the drain. And my heart circles round and round and round and round and round new terrain as the world goes round and round and round and round and round and round the new. That was beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to belt at 10 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> you have performed the show in New York a bunch. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to do it for like a New York-friendly audience, uh-huh. but also you recently took it to North Carolina yeah. after um, HB2 passed. Uh-huh. What was it like performing for those audiences? It was incredible. Yeah, yeah it was really incredible. You know, we we crowdfunded that tour. We were playing eight cities in nine days, and it was just me and my band in a van. And we had an incredible time. Not only were we performing the show, but we were also meeting with different community groups in these different cities that were dealing with the law and doing the direct action organizing that was necessary to to challenge it. And then I was, like, stuck using men's restrooms in all the public places throughout the entire trip, which was disheartening and at times harrowing. But also, 48 hours after we left New York, the Pulse nightclub shootings happened. And I had just done the first performance and I had seven more to go. And it really changed the tone of the trip, which was originally this sort of irreverent protest tour that was sort of like cheerleading for the queers. And then it became, I need to hold space for mourning for these communities in each city that I was going to, uh, people who already felt unsafe in their own state were now at a total loss for what to do and and how to feel and how to go on with their normal lives. Do you want to go on tour again? I do so badly. <laughs> I do. Uh, where would you, where would, where do you think your next tour should be? Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, you I'm, really just go right into the Yeah, areas. well, I'm not afraid. And, like, yeah. I, you know, like, I, I feel like this is sort of my duty. I've always said that when the revolution comes, I want to be on the front line entertaining the troops. So I just want to make sure we get to talk about difficult people a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you joined the cast of Hulu's Difficult People for season two. Um, if people aren't familiar, it's Julie Klausner, Billy Eichner. They play... I would say most of the time charming people, but mostly unlikable people also. And your character, Lola, kind of gets right in the mix there. Um, yeah. The first time we meet Lola, it's with a bang. Um, I want to play that first scene. Oh, great. Which okay. is at the uh, restaurant where Billy works, and your character, Lola, has just been hired. Yeah, well, we thought you quit when you didn't show up for three days, so we hired Lola. Oh, you quit? No, no, no. I was just in uh, very deep sleep. Yeah, like the rest of the country. Lola, and yeah, I'm trans. Oh, okay. Oh, is it okay, Mr. Biological Essentialist? Do I have your cisgendered permission to be who I am? 
And you know what else? Bush did 9-11 and jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Well, now seems as good a time as any to have that conversation. Yeah, I'm a trans-truther, motherfucker. Right, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You uh, declare all of the things about <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, boom. It's a very declarative scene. And, you know, I say things on the show and in, in that character that a, a lot of trans folk would take issue with. Uh, and I've been called out for it. But it's also, it's called difficult people. You know what I mean? We're not there to be pleasant. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, I think, I mean, Mara from Transparent or Sophia from Orange is the New Black, he gave me a little bit of face there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad this is only an audio recording. <laughs> well, so they're labeled as comedic characters, but and, <laughs> and now you are shaking your hair in a don't even start with me. There, they, tell me one time you've laughed. <laughs> There are really funny aspects of Orange is the New Black and yeah. really funny aspects of Transparent. None of them have anything to do with the trans characters. Right. Well, that's my question because they are uh, in a lot of ways like heroic or so. Yeah, I would say sympathetic yes. more than heroic. Right. Um, yeah. And that's – listen, I think that every oppressed minority that has made their way on to the mainstream entertainment scene has done so through sympathetic portrayals mm. first and foremost. You know, like – like whether it's like the you know suffering black mother in uh, imitation of life or the like gay man dying of AIDS in Philadelphia, we have to gain mainstream acceptance by making people feel sorry for us. Mm. It's terrible, but it has worked. I'm not interested in that. Lola to me is the is the first trans character where she's creating comedy. You know, she's and it's not and it's there's nothing sympathetic about her. And she's also like a generator of of humor, not a a subject of humor. I just want to close with my favorite scene from the season where you and your coworkers are getting CPR training in the cafe uh, because it turns out none of you actually know how to do it. And it just goes so terribly wrong for the poor volunteer trainer named Marcy. Hey, don't yell at me. I'm just trying to do what you said, Marcy. This is my one free night. I have to sit here and listen to Marcy. Get the fuck out of here, Marcy. Fuck you, Marcy. We hate each other, but we all agree that fuck you. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of here, Marcy. Fucking door, Marcy. Yeah. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Fuck out of here. Women's shelter Give bullshit. Yeah, take choking Chucky and get back on the bus, Marcy. Yeah, bus is that way and sit in the back, Go by the, the bus way. bus back to your cisgender, transphobic women's shelter. Is it fun to get to play an unlikable character? Oh, it's a blast. Yeah. Yeah, it's a blast. Well, I take out a lot of my own aggression, you know, in, in those scenes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, there are certain words that are just, like, off limits, and I'm going to be using some of those words in season three. Yeah. That's great. That's Shakina Nafak. You can see her on Hulu's Difficult People, and her one-woman show is, say it with me, Kathy. Yes. Manifest, Manifest Pussy. Pussy. All right, that's the end of the show. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter. We are at Nancy Podcast. And be sure to give us a great review wherever you download the show. And now it's time for credits. Our sound designers. Jeremy Bloom and Isaac Jones. Editor. Jenny Lawton. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. And our incredible producer. Matt Collette. Hi, Matt. Hey, guys. What's the thing that people need to know about us? Is this where you want me to say something, like, nice about you guys? Yes. How about instead I just tell everybody that this is, like, the fourth time we've had to record the credits? Matt! Stop it! It's not true. I think it is, though. 
Also, I guess you guys are great. Aww. I'm Kathy too. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. I almost said, I'm Matt Collette, but, <laughs> but I don't belong there. You could try and be like, Matt, just stop. Get back behind the glass. <laughs>